0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Most of you know I like to be pretty transparent. When I'm thinking something, working on something, I like to share it, and uh, from time to time, I'll share it with some of the elders or different people, what God's putting me through. And every now and then, you get these weeks where you you just don't know what ends up. And part of it is because it's Palm Sunday. And the natural thing to preach on Palm Sunday is Christ's triumphal entry, especially when most people, when they think of the triumphal entry, they think of the fact that, Jesus rode in on a donkey with people laying palm branches in front of him and praising him and shouting Hosanna. And it's such a wonderful, amazing thing. But few people think that when he entered the gate, he entered through the sheep gate. It was the sacrificial gate. And I believe, as scholars have told us and as we read the account... For certain, there were palm branches, and for certain, there was people shouting, Hosanna. But did you ever stop and realize that it happened in the middle of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheep being herded through the gate for the sacrifice? Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. And as I was working and laboring this week and trying to put something together, the Spirit was pushing me back to our series in Philippians. And I'm thinking, well, why? Shouldn't we be talking about the triumphal entry? Shouldn't we be talking about this? But as the week went on, and I realized that our passage is in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, 27 just shouted out at me, only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I still wrestled all week, but then on Friday, I had a eureka moment. The Lord gave me a verse completely out of context where I was. It was Colossians 128. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone Teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The cross reference for that word mature is found in Matthew 5, verse 48. It says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when you begin to think about that, you begin to say, Wait a minute, I'm human, I'm not perfect. I mean, just talk to my spouse, talk to my kids, talk to my friends. I'm far from perfect. But here is what the scriptures teach, is that when you and I fully surrender to the Spirit of God and He is living through us, Psalm 37.4 comes shouting out, delight yourself also in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And the reality is, is that when you and I walk surrendered to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit leads and guides us, into his truth, and our heart changes to the things he wants. And then the things that should go in your life, naturally, you want to get rid of. And those that should be there, you embrace. So as I thought about this whole reality and this triumphal entry, and then went back to Philippians, it was very clear to me, because as Colossians 1.28 says, it's my responsibility to present everyone mature in Christ. And so the message is literally our maturity. And so Paul says in Philippians 27 through 30, only let your life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in the spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So, last week we looked at this amazing story of our death benefits and how what is awaiting for every one of us who are in Christ when we get to glory and all the tremendous benefits. But when Paul said earlier, for me to live is Christ. This wasn't a declaration for himself. It was a declaration for all of us to live in Christ. So every Christian must learn the principle that privilege implies responsibility. Certainly not responsibility to attain it, but responsibility as a result of it. Let me illustrate this uh, with an old English king. Henry... Uh, was uh, a very irresponsible man. Uh, Henry loved carousing with his friends. He wanted no responsibilities. He just lived for himself. But then one day, the old king passed away. Henry realized that he didn't own the crown because of any virtue in himself. But he purposed in his heart from that point on to live worthy of the crown that was now his. He doesn't hold the crown through any virtue, but he is going to represent it at the best of his ability. And becoming king produced such a change in Henry that from this point on, Henry V became one of the greatest kings in Israel, or in uh, England's history. In a similar way, Christians are to live worthy of our spiritual possessions. If you're a Christian, you do not hold your possession in Christ through any virtue of your own. What you have is only come as a free gift from the King of Kings. But having it, you must live worthy of your calling. Old things are to be put away, all things are to become new. And this is the point of this section in Philippians. Paul has spoken of the privileges that Christians have in Christ. He now speaks of their obligations. Are they fulfilling their duties as Christians? Do they stand together against increased opposition? Are they faithful in prayer? Do they draw together in love, having their fellowship enriched by the Holy Spirit? Are they one in mind and purpose? If these things are so, Paul has reason to rejoice. They will be mature Christians affecting the world around them for the cause of Christ. Now perhaps there has never been a time in history When true Christians have lived more like those who were in the world and have shined less for Christ. Unfortunately, it can be said of many churches today as they try to adopt their philosophy and their preaching to attract people. And as a result, the churches are full of unsaved people and the ministry is quenched, the Holy Spirit is quenched. So, what Paul is doing here now is he is beginning to draw everyone's attention to our citizenship. And he's going to shift into a gear that these uh, people at Philippi, these Roman citizens, are going to really begin to understand. Paul teaches this truth in verse 27 by means of a word that's so hard to translate. It's often translated with six words. And they are, conduct yourself in a manner worthy. Or as our English Standard Version says, let your manner of life be worthy in the literal greek it actually is written out like this only worthy of the glad tidings of the christ conduct yourself now the word that is so hard to translate is the greek word paletio and it's based on a noun meaning city the greeks called it a polis in the classical age the polis was the largest political unit and the Greeks belong to this as we would belong to a country. Consequently, the noun actually refers to citizenship, and the verb means to conduct oneself worthy as a citizen of a city-state. Now, even the translation city-state was not that good in the eyes of the Greek because anyone can be a member of a city and not feel like they're a part of it. And it's greater than country because you can live in a country and not be involved in the politics or government, but this was not possible for the Greeks who lived in a Greek polis. The polis was his life. Its laws were part of his being. Its customs were something of which he was proud. He knew all about it. He knew practically everybody in it. And the polis demanded his complete loyalty, and he gave it willingly and joyfully. To him, it was the best part of his life. And so it's from this angle that Paul is now taking these Philippians to understand that there is a new citizenship. There is a new thing here that they're a part of if they've accepted Christ as their Savior. It was this conception of the city-state that led the uproar against Paul in Ephesus and many other cities that he went to. He was literally upsetting the apple cart with talk of a new allegiance, a new citizenship. And this was tough for these people to get their hands around because they knew loyalty, they knew citizenship, and it was to Rome. And now Paul is talking about a new citizenship, a new place. All of this is directly applicable to the responsibility of Christians. When Paul writes that the Christians at Philippi are to conduct themselves worthy as citizens, He's not thinking about a literal city in which his readers live. He is thinking of the church. And in this context, his admonition to point men to active living responsibility within his church and as citizens of heaven. Is the polis a state? So is the church. Consequently, Christians are to walk worthy of the organization. Is the polis a people? So is the church. Consequently, we are to preserve individual interests and respect individual contributions. Is the polis a living community? So is the church. Consequently, Christians are to share a common life and contribute to one another and build up one another and encourage one another in the things of the faith. You see, the church is not just a Sunday social gathering. It is a way of life. It is a way of life that God has set up where you and I can learn the things of the Word, that we can learn how to follow the Holy Spirit, that we can learn how to build up one another, spend time with one another, encourage one another, be with one another in prayer and support. So if your pastor gets on you because he hasn't seen you, it's not because he's trying to pad the numbers. It's because he knows that this is your citizenship. He knows that this is where you grow and understand and develop your heart to walk with Christ. It's much easier to find your way through life when you're not always trying to find God's will. Now, what do I mean by that? You and I are so focused, we human beings, we Christian, frail human beings, that as we're walking in life in this direction, we're constantly trying to find God's will for our life. God's will for our life and we struggle sometimes to to find that direction but when we're actively learning in the things of the church in the things of the spirit in the things of the word of God we begin to realize that it's not about God's will in my life it's about my wife being conformed to his leading and you learn that in a body of believers where Christ is at the center There are always going to be problems when Christians forget any of these aspects. When Christians forget they are members of a Christian uh, state, as it were, then the right of the individual constant reigns supreme, and each does what seems right in his or her own mind. When the organization dominates, individual is suppressed, and it may take a Martin Luther-type intervention to reestablish the relationship God intended between Christians and God. And as I said, we see this in many churches today who have adopted this worldly ministry in an attempt to track people into their membership. The Bible is adapted to their culture rather than the culture being adapted to the Bible. The result is that the church is watered down right from the start. Here at Grace, we do not seek growth. We seek surrender. We seek to learn to build up one another in this polis as it was, to be the church led by the Holy Spirit so that our manner of life will always be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then it is Christ who gives the increase and it's on his terms and in his will. So Paul did not want the Christians at Philippi to omit any of these elements and neither should we. Knowing ourselves to be members of a living community of which Jesus Christ is the head is the one formula that builds our focus and causes us to be dedicated to his purpose. So as Paul addresses Philippi, he takes all this understanding because the Romans were the same way. Their loyalty was strong. He takes this then and now he focuses it on the people at Philippi. And further light is shed upon this verse by the fact that Philippi enjoyed a privileged relationship to Rome. Prior to the great civil war in which Octavian finally defeated Anthony, Philippi was like any other city in the region. And when the defeat took place and his people took over, an allegiance changed, desire changed to be like Rome. And so they accepted Roman leadership with pleasure They accepted Roman conduct as a badge of honor, and they were excited to be Romans. Roman law was practiced by the local civil administration, and as far as possible, this far out front uh, city in the far frontier of the Roman Empire, Philippi, adapted to all the Roman customs. And to be a colony was something of which they were very, very proud. And this is why when Paul began to preach... They got so shook up about what he was saying. In fact, in Acts chapter 16 verses 20 and 21, they take Paul before the magistrate and when they brought them, they said, these men are Jews and they are disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. You see, immediately they knew that there was a different allegiance Paul was preaching. They knew what allegiance was and it was to Rome. And so they panicked and they dragged him before the magistrate. This explains why Paul's phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, is so significant. Paul knew how proud the Philippians were of their earthly citizenship. He knew that they allowed it to affect not only their laws, but their city and their whole uh, group of, of social customs and daily conduct. So how much more were they to be proud of their citizenship in heaven? How much more were they to understand and be excited, knowing that their influence as Romans was to influence everyone in the region for Rome? Now they have a whole new allegiance. Now there is something even greater, even more important than Rome. It's called heaven. They are now citizens of heaven. And so as Paul emphasizes this to the Philippians, you realize that he's writing this to you and I today. We're to be responsible citizens of Westerville or whatever town you're from, of Ohio, of America, but our true citizenship, if you're a child of God, is in glory with Jesus Christ. And that's what we await. So while we live and walk on this earth, we're to conduct ourselves in a manner fitting of heaven. And who our true king is, Jesus Christ. So we need to take it to the community, the words of Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I were like Abraham was, a foreigner in a distant land. But God called you to be citizens of heaven, and now that allegiance must be made clear. It reminds me of an old story, and I think I've shared it with you before, but of an old missionary coming home from the field after 40 years of faithful service in a foreign land. It just so happened that the ship he was on also had Harry Truman on board. And as the ship pulled into New York Harbor and they got closer to the dock, he noticed that there were thousands of people crowded on the dock, and bands began to play. And it was all a celebration for Harry Truman coming home. And you know, the old missionary, in a weak moment, he leaned on the rail and he thought, wow, 40 years of faithful service and not a single person waiting for me. But no sooner did he get that thought when the Spirit impressed on him, you're not home yet. There is a celebration for each one of us in glory when we arrive there. I happened to think of that this week with Joyce King's passing and for the last year struggling with ALS and the difficult way that disease ravaged her body. What an incredible reception did she receive last Thursday when she walked into the presence of her Savior. Hebrews 11 verses 9 through 10 says, By faith, speaking of Abraham, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Being citizens of heaven, we are to live by the laws of that citizenship. So the question then comes, I hear it, I see what you're saying, How do I do it? How do I live it? And Paul immediately tells us. By the unity of the Spirit. At this point, Paul turns to two practical expressions of proper Christian conduct. Look at the second half of verse 27. He says that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. How do you live as citizens of heaven? First, by standing firm in one spirit. And second, with one mind, we are to strive side by side for the advancement of the gospel. Now, how do we do this? Well, he says, first of all, by keeping the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians 4.3 says, eager to maintain the unity of Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, when you have a congregation where half its members are striving to live in the Spirit, the other are living like the world, the congregation is neutered. It's inhibited. So Paul emphasizes that it's so important for you and I to walk in unity. And if we're not in unity, we're to be into the Word into prayer, in amongst our brothers and sisters to learn how this unity builds. You probably have Christian friends that you talk about something or open a passage and you start to say something and they say, I was thinking that very thing. Or, I can't believe you said that. That that was on my mind too. And you begin to cultivate this heart, this oneness with the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is guiding, as the Scripture says, one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth. And that's what he's doing. And when Christian brothers and sisters are of the same mind, of the same purpose, of the same goals, then God can mightily use that organization. And see, Philippians understood a single mind in the purpose of Rome. Now they're learning through the blood of Christ and sanctification and everything that goes with it, our mind is now singled towards glory. And it doesn't mean you walk around with your heads in the clouds. It means that you walk around with the Spirit leading your every step. Then when trials come into your life, God, it's going to be tough. You allowed it, so... Take me, take me through it. And your hope and strength is in the Lord, not yourself to get through it. When you trust Him in the good things, when you trust Him, when people come to you and want to know, how come you have this faith? You have the ability to share with all confidence what Christ has done in you. Christians should not be divided along different lines as we see. In fact, if we're going to be honest, Christians may be the most divided people in America. You know, you go into a community and you see First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist. Well, what happened to the Baptists? Aren't they in unity? And you see it with all different kinds of faith and religions and everything. Everybody has this little doctrine, that little doctrine, and we present a pitch, a bifurcated picture to the world. God's people ought to be unified with one purpose and one way. In fact, Christians often are known as the only people who shoot their wounded. Right? With our criticism and our, and our anger sometimes, it gets. I mean, just talk to a Christian about politics, right? No, don't have to say any more. But we are to be of one people. And, you know, this is what, the, what do you hear most in the news about Christians? They're hate mongers. They hate gays, they hate liberals, they hate this view, they hate that view. And what did Christ present when he was here on earth? A loving spirit offering grace and redemption. They were lovers of all people. They cared for all people. I'm always reminded, and forgive me if I repeat again, but I always go back to our story in John when they brought the adulterous woman before Jesus. You remember the story well. And they had caught her in the act. In fact, I think she was set up on purpose. And they brought her in front of Jesus, and according to the law, she should have been stoned. She should have been killed on the spot to uphold the law. And so every man crowded that courtyard all with stones in their hands, ready to just wield the matter because she was a violator. And you remember, Jesus is only Jesus could do. He writes in the sand, and then he gets up and he says, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And all you could hear was the dropping of stones as they walked away from the eldest to the youngest. Because the elder knew better. And when they left, the young they left too. And here's this woman who was bracing herself to be shattered by stones. And Jesus says, Woman, where's your accuser? I have none. Then neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. When people violate what you believe to be truth, do you have the heart of Jesus to go to them and say, Look, I don't accuse you. Let me love you. Let me show you what Christ did for me. Because I was on my way to hell. I was lost. And out of no doing of my own, he reached out and loved me with a cross. He triumphantly entered the city and his triumph was suffering. His triumph was brutal suffering for me. I don't care what your manner of life is. I don't care what sin you have. I don't care what's got you off track. I just want you to know that I love you because Jesus loved me first. And I want to show that love to you. Would you listen to me? That's the heart we need to have. How do we live as citizens of heaven? By striving for the faith of the gospel. This expression will naturally flow from the first. If Christians will conduct themselves in a manner that leads to Christian unity, then they will find that this also leads them to strive together to advance the gospel of Christ. The result will be a purpose-focused witness for Christ. Christians at Philippi knew what it meant to stand fast for the Roman culture, especially on the outer frontier of Rome. They knew the obligation that was theirs to advance Roman rule in the face of barbarianism. And in the same way, Paul would have them unite for the aggressive advancement of the faith. But in many ways, our faith has retreated today. When was the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? When was the last time you even thought about sharing the gospel with anybody? Remember... No one looked more earnestly at the return of Christ than Paul did. But Paul preached an active Christianity. He preached a total involvement of the polis and culture. That being the church, we should see as the day approaching our time occupied with spreading the gospel of Christ. E Stanley Jones made a statement that's resonated with me because what we often hear today is this idea of look how bad the world is getting. I mean, look how bad it's getting. Well, you know, they've been saying that for 2,000 years. I remember my parents telling me during World War II how when Hitler came to power and God's people were being exterminating in vast numbers, there was no way that we were going to last another year without Christ coming. That's 75 years ago. Here's what the early church said. The early church did not look in dismay What has the world come to? But in delight, look what has come to the world. They saw not merely the ruin, but the resources to recover the ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did abound much more. And the worse things got, the more they lived for Christ. And that is the message for you and I today on this Palm Sunday. As bad as this country gets, the more you and I are called on to live for Christ and show the difference. We don't know what God's plan holds as far as timing. But would we be willing to proclaim the message of Christ? Are you willing to be the voice God has called you to be? You know, it's very important for us to have a clear understanding of what Paul is saying to you and I. Because the days might be short. We don't know. But what you and I have is today. What you and I have is right now. <clears throat> now, why is it that we struggle so much to get over this hump? And I think Paul really kind of hits it on the head here it's because it's not without a price. Look at Philippians 1, verse 28 through 30. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But for your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let me pause here for a second. If there's one thing that gets my goat, it's the prosperity gospel. You know? People want to preach that if you just have more faith, everything will be fine. You just don't have enough faith. You you just don't trust Christ enough. And if you will just be more trusting, you can have your best life now. Well, look what Paul says in verse 30 engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We're talking about Paul here. He's still in prison. He's still chained. His trial is not going away. And we're talking about Paul, one of the greatest Christians who ever lived. You see, Paul's lot in life was to spread the gospel and part of his life was suffering. He rejoiced because it was God's will. And there was nothing more exciting for his life, nothing more powerful in his life to know that he was walking in the Spirit. And if that brought about suffering, so be it. If God be glorified, what else do I need? So he says in verse 29, For it has been granted to you. Now when I hear that word granted, I think of something that I've really wanted for a long time, and it's finally granted. You know? Uh, years ago, when, when I, my mother used to talk about uh, when she came to this country as an immigrant, that she filled out the papers and put everything in, and she had to wait, and she waited and waited and waited and waited. And then finally came the letter to her family that their citizenship had been granted. Granted. And it was a time of immense elation and excitement. They were Americans. And they were just so happy. Paul says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Huh. Now Let's talk about this, Paul. I'm not good at suffering. None of us are good at suffering. But here's the thing. When you've sold out to Christ, and you recognize that your citizenship is in heaven, and you realize that everything about your life is about glorifying Him, it doesn't matter what comes into your life. If He brought it, He'll get you through. If he brought it, he's going to use that for a very specific reason that's going to touch others. There's a sequence that apply to spiritual things that the order is largely unalterable. Sin brings death. Blessing follows obedience. Faithful in small things leads to faithful in many things. And surrendered Christian living leads to persecution. If you bear a proper witness for Christ and stand for Him, you'll receive persecution. We don't know where it comes from or who it comes from, but it will come. Why will it come? Because it's darkness versus light. The greatest example of this comes from the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world as the light of the world, but the world was in darkness and they did not want their deeds exposed. People could get along with the hypocrisy between one another for humans are very unified in their hypocrisy. But when Christ came, it stopped. People could get along with pride, dishonesty, sexual perversion, legalism among themselves, but they could not in Christ's presence. So in an attempt to remove the conviction, they crucified him, all the while following his plan to pay for the sins of the world. This is why so many Christians stay in the background and try to avoid this. But let me say something that is both a tremendous joy and a warning. Part of the persecution is proof of salvation. Look at verse 28 again. And not frightened in anything by our opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And it comes from God. Are you saying that God would allow persecution? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And when you're able to walk strong through it, it's proof of your heart. The word translated sign here is sometimes rendered token. In every case, the idea is of an undeniable manifestation of reality. It is not possible for a Christian to stand firm under persecution and for the world to dismiss it as nothing. It is evidence of a supernatural power. Consequently, it is a token of salvation to the Christian and of the destruction to those who don't believe. It is a yielding to the Spirit to live the Spirit-filled life. And it is evident and clear when you're forced to live through persecution that your heart is not going to be moved to the left or to the right, but that you are going to trust Him in the middle of this conflict, no matter how difficult it seems to be and how little control you have over it. Human character by itself can dissolve under the pressure of life. And this is why men and people are disheartened and even ruined by life. But Christians are to endure in the face of temptation and persecution. Moreover, the very fact that they endure is evidence that God has done a supernatural work in their heart. And this becomes evident to the world around them as well. Because when you hold up under difficult circumstances... People take notice. You're an encouragement to Christians. You're an encouragement to those who don't know Christ, and they want to know how on earth you stay floating when your life is full of holes. It may be that God will call you to bear up under persecution. It may be quiet and no one knows about it, but God, but God knows. It may be very public, but God will work through that because He has granted it for you. To watch him work in every situation of life. Do you begin to understand why John the Baptist said in John 3:30 he must increase and I must decrease? If it's the other way around, you simply can't last. If you are not daily surrendered to the leading of the Spirit, what do you really have? but self and self-effort. Today is Palm Sunday. Christ's triumphal entry. Triumphal entry into the most significant, most difficult suffering the world has ever known. But it produced the greatest victory the world will ever, ever see. Jesus Christ rode in on that donkey willingly to lay down his life for you. Are you willing to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God. as you so clearly laid out the life that you've laid before us, it is a privilege that we'll probably never understand this side of glory. It is a privilege that only you knew in your mind. But I pray that your spirit would actively work on the hearts of everyone here. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, They're here because they were invited or they're here just because of the time of the year. They've never had a relationship with you. I pray that today you would make them restless until they understand the meaning of being a citizen of heaven. I pray that you would bring them to us, Lord, to speak, that we might show them clearly how they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have eternal life. Lord I pray for Christians Lord who will, who are in need of changing direction for Christians who have been under great difficulty things out of their control they seem so helpless help them to realize that this too is allowed by God for a greater purpose that will be realized when the heart is surrendered cause all of us to walk with you and especially this Holy Week may may we be reminded even more clearly of the incredible life that's for us who believe and we give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name.